On Good Friday, Jesus did something that his disciples did not understand at all. He died on the cross. Three days later on Easter Sunday, Jesus did something else that his disciples did not understand at all. He rose bodily from the dead and appeared to them. And in one resurrection appearance, when they were freaked out and thinking that they were seeing a ghost, Jesus said, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures, which at that stage was just the Old Testament. And that is why we've had this Christ in the Psalms series, because look on screen. There is uh, Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And I should say thank you to Saz for uh, providing all these pictures this morning. And that is what the Christian message is all about. And I think we tend to think, surely, all I need to understand, Jesus, is the New Testament. After all, isn't that the bit of the Bible that's about him? But Jesus says, no, if you want to understand who I am, why I came, what it means to relate to me, you also need the Old Testament. In other words, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so we need the Old Testament. Next picture. There it is. We need the Old Testament not just for all of its promises about Jesus, like the, uh, the Micah prediction that he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but all the ways that it foreshadows Jesus in events like the Passover, in places like the temple, and in people like David, who was the prototype king of God's Old Testament people. And because so many of the Psalms are either by David or about David, it's no surprise to find the Psalms foreshadowing Jesus which I hope is what we've seen. We've looked at three of the most important psalms quoted in the New Testament, Psalms 2, 8, and 22. And um, I wonder what you would have said if I said, um, what is the bit of the Old Testament that is most quoted in the New Testament? I think a lot of us might have come up with something like Isaiah 53. It's actually the psalm we're looking at today, Psalm 110. It's not an easy one to get our minds around, so let me pray before we go any further. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we think of those resurrection appearances where you opened those first disciples' minds to understand the scriptures. And we pray that as we look at this psalm, you would now, by your spirit, open our minds and help us to see you in it. In your name, amen. So would you turn in the Bible to page 509 and um, Psalm 110, page 509, Psalm 110, the most quoted part of the Old Testament in the New Testament, so it must be pretty important for understanding Jesus. Once you've got there, uh, where it says above the 110, sit at my right hand, um, you need to know that is just a heading put in by the ESV Bible translators. So it's not part of the original God-given text of the Bible. But wherever you see a psalm heading in capitals in the ESV, it is part of the original God-given text. 
And uh, you need to keep that in mind when you're trying to understand a psalm. So here, all we're told is it's a psalm of David. And as we will see later, Jesus said that meant David wrote it. So look at Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So what is going on here? It's not a prayer out of some personal experience like Psalm 22 last week. It seems to be a vision or or a prophecy about Christ on the far horizon. So to make sense of it, let me remind you again of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Here it is up on screen. Uh, God to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house as in a temple for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but... My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, as in your dynasty, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And I assume, as I've said before, that as David pondered that promise, the Lord showed him that one day it will be be fulfilled in a more than merely human successor or son of David. So, like this next picture says, the way to have a forever kingdom is one day to have a forever king who is more than merely human. So not just another same as, same as son of David, but the ultimate capital S son of David. And just remember, David, like his sons, was known as the Lord's anointed. Another way of saying that is Christ. So they were the small c Christs. So another way of putting it is that the way to have a forever kingdom is one day not just to have another small c Christ, but to have the ultimate capital C Christ. And in Psalm 110, David seems to have this vision of a conversation between the Lord God and that forever king, that ultimate son of David, that ultimate Christ. So look at this next picture. There is the Lord, God. Under him, there is David, who was a thousand years before Jesus, and he was currently the Lord's anointed, small c, Christ. But in Psalm 110, verse 1, David says, the Lord says to My Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So he's he's overhearing this conversation between the Lord and someone he calls my Lord. So look at this next picture. Who is this figure he calls my Lord? Well, he's clearly above David. That's why he calls him my Lord. And if he's at God's right hand, sharing God's rule, it looks like he somehow is God. 
So this is one of those places in the Old Testament uh, which hint that God is more than one person. And this my Lord figure looks like he is God's forever king. He's the ultimate son of David. He's the ultimate Christ who is both human and divine. And in case you're thinking I am pulling a rabbit out of a hat there, can I say that interpretation comes straight from Jesus. So in the final showdown before the cross, when Jesus confronted Israel's godless leaders and cleansed the temple, do you remember they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? In other words, who do you think you are? And in the argy-bargy that followed, Jesus turned on them and said this. This is from Mark 12. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, in other words, inspired by God's Spirit, declared, and here comes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how come he's his son? Okay, this is a bit head-scratching. But Jesus was saying... This my Lord figure in Psalm 110 is the ultimate son of David, the ultimate Christ they were expecting. And then he says, isn't it strange that David calls him my Lord? Because in those days, your descendants were never thought as greater than you. You were always greater than them. So David would always be thought greater than his sons and his grandsons and his great-great-grandsons all the way down the tracks. But Jesus says, here is David in Psalm 110 calling his son at the very end of the tracks, my Lord. In other words, a a completely different order of greatness than David. Sharing God's rule, somehow God himself. And Jesus is saying, you want to know by what authority I'm doing these things, clearing the temple, confronting you? You want to know who I think I am? You understand Psalm 110 verse 1, you'll see. So here's the picture of how to read Psalm 110, verse 1, Christianly. Jesus has come a first time. He's died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. And he's back in glory with his father saying to him, sit at my right hand, son, until I make your enemies your footstool. And that, of course, means that right now his enemies are free to rebel against him. That's why that word until is there. So even though Jesus is the rightful king of everybody on the planet today, anyone can get up this morning and just choose to ignore him, say, I don't want you running my life. I want to run my life my own way. The results of that human rebellion that we see in the news and, of course, in our own lives as well, the results will often make us want to pray, please stop it, like the war poet Siegfried Sassoon did at the end of his poem, Attack. I don't know if you ever learnt this at school like I had to. The barrage roars and lifts, then clumsily bowed with bombs and guns and shovels and battle gear, men jostle and climb to meet the bristling fire. Lines of grey, muttering faces masked with fear. They leave their trenches going over the top while time ticks blank and busy on their wrists. And hope with furtive eyes and grappling fists flounders in mud. 
Oh, Jesus, make it stop. And he hasn't. Yet. But we need to remember, the moment he does, all opportunity to change sides is over. And the Bible says the reason that the human race has another day today to rebel against God and to fight its wars and to commit its evils is that God in his kindness is giving it another day where it has the chance to turn back to Jesus and forgiven, uh, be forgiven and change sides before he comes again to judge the living and the dead, as, as we said a moment ago. And verse 3 is a lovely vision of those who do change sides. Look at verse 3. It says, your people. So David is now speaking to the Lord Jesus, although, of course, he didn't know that name yet. He says, your people will offer themselves freely. It's a strong word for being completely willing, gladly giving yourself. Can't do enough for this person. Your people will offer themselves freely. On the day of your power, the footnote says, on the day you lead your forces, which I think really is the whole time between Jesus' first and second comings, on the day you lead your forces in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So verses 1 and 2 give us this extraordinary picture of Jesus as a king with absolute power, who one day will overthrow his enemies, no doubt about that. So you might have expected verse 3 to picture his people as, as kind of cringing conscripts forced onto his side against their will, because that's how it would be with an ordinary human king with absolute power. And that's Putin's army, isn't it? Instead, it says, your people will offer themselves freely, because this king amazingly has, has first offered himself freely on the cross and he doesn't force anyone onto his side he only calls and loves people onto his side and and that's what he's doing for you this morning if you're not there on his side already and that's why after communion we're going to say that prayer almighty god we thank you for feeding us with the body and blood of your son jesus christ through him we offer you our souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice because Healthy Christians who are living under the cross don't say to themselves, you know, well, I have to serve him. We're saying, I want to serve him, aren't we? We're not sitting here saying, you know, I've got to live like this. We're saying, "I, I get to live like this. I get to live a new life in Christ where I'm not bound by my sinfulness and my past anymore. So really, Psalm 110, I think, is a vision of the kind of king Jesus is, a human and divine king, an absolute king who will one day overcome all enemies, and yet a king who allows us freedom and who wins us through love, not through force. But the other thing in Psalm 110 is that Jesus is also a priest king. So here on my next picture is the other thing that the Lord says to my Lord that God the Father says to his son, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So just think back to when God gave his law to his Old Testament people through Moses. If I were to ask you what was the central thing in the law, what would you say? 
probably quite a few would say the Ten Commandments. Others, maybe the, the love commands, love God, love your neighbor. Those were vital for knowing how to live in relationship with God. But for being in that relationship in the first place and for staying in that relationship, the central thing in the law was the tabernacle, which later became the temple. Because it was the God-given way through which sinful people could relate to a holy God. In some ways, I think the best illustration of it today, was it was like the, the router in your house that connects devices through the router to the internet out there. It was there to connect sinful people who needed forgiving with a holy God who was willing to forgive. And at the heart of it, uh, in the temple, you had the priests offering sacrifices, and, and priest just means a go-between. But those Old Testament sacrifices were only ever pictures of how costly forgiveness is. They never actually paid for anybody's forgiveness. Only Jesus' sacrifice coming up in the future paid for any of the forgiveness for Old Testament believers. If I can put it like this, if you imagine the cross at the center of history, the cross worked backwards for Old Testament believers just like it works forwards for us. But those Old Testament sacrifices that were just pictures, they did at least teach people that sacrifice, that, sorry, that forgiveness was possible and available through God-given sacrifice. And as David pondered the priests and the sacrificed, I assume, again, the Lord showed him that they could never actually solve the sin problem. So he would have thought how generation after generation after generation of priests offered sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and the very fact that they had to keep doing it showed that the problem was never solved. It's, it's like around our way, you know, council worker after council worker after council worker fills in pothole after pothole after pothole. And, and then another army begins refilling the holes. And, and, and you think, you know, no one has actually solved the problem. No one has done the radical thing we really need of a new road. And it was like that with the priests and sacrifices. So inspired by God, David realized that much earlier in the Bible than the law and its priests... God had planted this hint, this gigantic hint of how he was one day going to solve the sin problem. And it's in Genesis 14, and it's this mystery man, Melchizedek. So in Genesis 14, Abraham, one of the big Old Testament characters, had just fought and beaten some of the local city king thugs who had kidnapped his nephew Lot. And on his way back past Jerusalem, we're told this on screen. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham, a.k.a. Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And that's all we hear about Melchizedek. Three verses. But what David saw was that Melchizedek was king and priest together. In David's time, those roles were separate. David was king and the priests were priests. But as God gave him this Psalm 110 vision, it seems David was shown that ultimately God would recombine those two roles 
in one person, to whom he would say, verse 4, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So there is the, the rest of the picture of how to read Psalm 110 Christianly. There is Jesus' one sacrifice for all sins for all time on the cross, as we'll say in those words in communion shortly. The one sacrifice that really did pay for all sins, yours and mine included. And there's Jesus risen back from the dead with his father, the priest through whom we can always be forgiven for anything. And don't get the picture of of God the Father somehow being reluctant uh, to forgive us, but Jesus persuading him to do so. Because remember, it was the Father's plan in the first place to give his own son as our sacrifice and our priest. And if you go to Bible Gateway uh, and search Melchizedek, you will find him in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then all the way through Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7, which spell out in detail what I've only had time to sketch. So to end with, just look at this picture one last time. That is a picture which says Jesus and his death is all that you and I need for relating to God. All we need to come to God just as we are on any given day. But we find that so hard to believe, don't we? So hard that we are always slipping into thinking that we need to try to be our own little priests, making our own little offerings to God so that he will accept us after we've sinned. Let me mention in closing two of the favorite offerings I think we try to bring to the Lord. One is the offering of being sorry enough. And I think we use this one especially for the big things on our consciences. And we come to God, we say, please will you forgive me because here's my offering of of how sorry I am. Maybe even how much I've punished myself for this. And And the Lord says... I've given you the only priest you ever need. He's offered the only sacrifice that ever counts. So take your eyes off how sorry you feel and just come to me through him and be forgiven. The other thing I think we try to bring God is is the offering of trying harder in future. And we use that one especially for the sins we struggle with and fail in repeatedly. And we say to God... Please will you forgive me because here's my offering of how I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better. I'm going to beat this thing. And the Lord says, look, I've given you the only priest you'll ever need. He's offered the only sacrifice that ever counts. So please take your eyes off how you are doing or how you will do. And just come to me through him and be forgiven again and again, and again. Well, that is the last of this series on Christ in the Psalms. I hope it's shown how the Psalms, as much as the rest of the Old Testament, point forward to Jesus, and I hope it's helped us see Jesus and his death and resurrection, not just more clearly, but maybe in ways that we never have before. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, sitting right now at your Father's right hand, and we thank you that you do rule over all things now, and that one day you will bring the enemies of human rebellion, of suffering, of evil, and of death itself to an end. 
And we come to you also as our priest forever, praising you for your one sacrifice for all sin and thanking you that by trusting it, we stand forgiven forever. And we pray that you'd help us to take these things in afresh as we ponder them in communion this morning and then send us out to offer ourselves freely back to you. In your name we pray. Amen.